If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Okay, so Ed, a few weeks ago, we were doing an episode about Christmas carols and yeah. whatever happened to Christmas carols. You and Corey and I were talking about that. And I was intrigued by a point that you made in there. And, you know, you make so many intriguing points that they just kind of come and like rapid fire staccato. Right, it's my function in this relationship here. But, you know, you made a, it just came right past and we didn't really stop and explore it. And I made a note to myself when I was listening to the episode later, like, oh, we need to come back and talk about this. But you were making a point about that our culture doesn't seem and nobody seems to believe in like bigger things anymore. Well, you want to kind of explore that because I want to, I want to drill down on that topic today. Yeah. Uh, I remember what I said. It was about the, um, the city hall building and it reminded me of something else too. Now that you're saying this, I'm drawn to these mid-century modern wall paintings that are city abstract cityscapes that are so abstract that you know whatever and there's always I'm all I'm drawn into them and there was one that I it, it I you know I, if I was naming it I would name it the pavilion of the gods there was really just these columns and but there was pillars and and you know and things and I thought you know there was something just so transcendent about that when I was a kid we would take the bus my mom and I down to downtown Grand Rapids from Burton Heights and we'd um pay the tax bill or whatever at the city hall. And it was this big ornate stone building. It was gorgeous with spires and a huge stairway, as I remember it, and big wooden doors and all that. Um, And then a couple of years later, they tore it down and put up something uh, brutalist or something, you know, some some ugly, ugly square, squattish glass and concrete concrete thing. thing. Yeah. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Maybe it's a nice building. I don't know. But anyway, I think it's it's, not. Okay. We lost something in that. And, and it's a thing that I have watched in my lifetime disappear. And I guess I would have to say, that it's a sense of the transcendent. And it's a thing that when you took me to the mass in Grand Rapids, that struck me immediately. I was immediately standing in that building. I was reminded that there are bigger things. And that's a thing that draws me to Catholicism that doesn't, that doesn't appear in the Protestant, my Protestant past, the churches ended up in my lifetime all looking like banks, right. uh, which, which I, I, I didn't like. Um, or movie theaters. Or movie yeah. theaters or something. Um, so can we talk about that Catholics, yeah. uh, Catholicism and that sense of transcendency? Yeah, I, it's an incredibly great point. And I don't even know where to begin. You know, I think it is intrinsic to Catholicism, and I'm going to actually start back at the beginning. And I think that the beginning is this notion that goes back to the early church of what are called the three transcendentals, because you're talking about the transcendent. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the three, what are called the three transcendentals. And in fact, it goes so far back, it actually predates Christianity. Hmm. So uh, the ancient Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, whatnot, talked about 
the transcendentals. These were, especially in Plato, this notion that these things were sort of eternal realities. And the three transcendentals that these Greek philosophers identified were truth and goodness and beauty. So if you think about certain things having transcendent reality, like the example that's often given is mathematics, like two plus two equals four. It doesn't equal, it, it doesn't happen to, that's a sort of eternal reality. It'll always equal four. Right. The truths of mathematics, the example that's right. often given, are these sort of transcendent realities. You know, you, in math class, it could say, well, you know, um, you know, Johnny has two apples and Sally has two apples. And if they combine them, how many apples? And we can count the apples, right? That's an example. Right. But if there were no apples, if there were no Johnny and Sally, if we were, it's like if the tree, you know, fell in the forest and nobody was there, would right. it still make a sound? If there were no Johnny and there was no Sally and there were no apples, two and st- two would still equal four. Does right. that make sense? Yep. That's this notion of a transcendental truth. So the ancient Greeks said, well, there are certain transcendental qualities and one of them is truth, like two plus two equals four. Right. It always equals four. Whether, And in fact, they would say nobody invented two plus two equals four. They discovered it. Sure, sure. Right? And the same thing with like geometry, right? Like, you know, pi and, you know, right. the square of the hypotenuse, whatever. Right, the yeah. truths of geometry are just the truths of geometry. Now, then we, the Greeks also said, well, there's, there's also beauty. And there was a notion that things are beautiful. So things that we look at that are beautiful are because they, Plato would have said, because they partake in the eternal reality of, of beauty. And the same thing with goodness. There is a transcendental quality of moral goodness. So this was a, a notion that was in the ancient world. And when Christianity came along, the church fathers, who of course were ancients and spoke Greek, and this was part of it, began to realize that this part of the precursor of Christianity, that a lot of these things that they recognized were true. And this notion of the three transcendentals enters Christianity with the church fathers, that there are the transcendental realities of truth, goodness, and beauty, the true and the good and the beautiful. Where Christianity changes that is it says that those are qualities of God. Mm -hmm. So God is eternally transcendentally, intrinsically, existentially, by definition, he is truth, right? John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos, the word was God, right? The same thing with beauty. God is ultimately beautiful. The the degree to which anything is beautiful in creation is because Mm -hmm. it partakes in the beauty of the creator, and in the same thing with goodness, the, the, the creator is ultimately good. He defines what is goodness and the degree to which there's anything that is good in the creation that comes from the creator. It's because it reflects or shines or partakes in that. You with mm-hmm. me so far? Yep. And, and, and therefore, now advancing a little bit in the development of Catholic theology, not only does the idea that these are three intrinsic qualities of God, the transcendental qualities of God, they also become paths to God in Mm. Catholic theology. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church says this. It says that these are all three paths. So if I find something in this world that is true, like two plus two equals four, 
and I follow that truth, like following a, a, a river that turns into a stream that turns into a creek, right. which, which is bigger, a stream or a creek, I don't know, right? right? But you follow the river and it kind of goes up into the mountains and it becomes a stream and then it becomes a creek and then it becomes a trickle and it comes to the spring, the source. Right. If I take a truth like two plus two equals four and I follow that to its source, I find its source in God. So following anything that is true will ultimately lead me to the source of truth, which is God. Right. Same thing with goodness. If I find something that's good in this world, anything that's good in this creation, and I follow it back up to its source, it will lead me to God. And the same thing, this comes back to your building in Grand Rapids, your right. city hall, the same thing with beauty. That if I find something beautiful in this world and beautiful things are beautiful because they partake and remind us and draw us towards the transcendent reality of God. And if we follow those beautiful things, we'll get there. So when we look at the great beauty of, 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 of church art or architecture, you know, I've, I talk a lot about um, Michelangelo's uh, Pieta, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, if I look at the, the, his statue, the Pieta, and I look at the beauty of that, and I ponder that, and I follow that, and I pursue that, you know where that's going to lead me? It's going to lead me to God. Right. Um, and, and so, because Catholicism believes that in these transcendentals, and because Catholicism believes that uh, the creation and the church should reflect these transcendentals and because Catholicism believe that the transcendent, believes that the transcendentals in a sense are pathways that will lead us to their source in God. Catholicism has all been about preserving truth, goodness, and beauty and preserving the transcendent nature of those things. Mm -hmm. You with me? Yep. So architecture, art, literature, uh, scholarship, mathematics, every field of human life should be imbued and filled with these transcendent realities and remind us of them and point us to them. And that's why the heritage of Catholicism is so full of that and feels full of the transcendent. Whereas modernism, enlightenism, and I would argue Protestantism does not have that sense of the transcendent and is not about creating those pathways from here to the transcendent realities of God. Right? Yes, and I am terribly drawn to that. I've missed it since I was a kid. Um, I didn't travel by air when I was a kid, but I remember that people used to dress up to try to fly on airplanes. And I, maybe that's not a very good example, but it's, we used to dress up to go to church. You know, there was something about acknowledging higher things, even if you didn't understand them, that, 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 that it, there's something about that that draws you in. So I could see that if I was, if I grew up going to, uh, to church at the uh, cathedral downtown in Grand Rapids, that I would, I would grow up with a sense of how big God is and how beautiful God is and all those things. And there's, there's also mixed in with that is the, the, uh, this whole year zero thing that I think it's a concept you introduced me to. Um, it's a modern conceit that everything, that everything, um, 
that came before, it, it just doesn't matter. And it's, it's all old fashioned. We talked in, in a previous podcast about me, about, about a young people that I was talking to, um, living together before they, before they got married and it made me feel old fashioned, but I don't see that as, as old fashioned as so much as the thing they're doing being like Chesterton said, um, just the same old mistake being repeated, right. you know? So let's go back to something you said a second there about people dressing up on airplanes yeah. and, and buildings and the culture. And, and let me connect that back to what I was talking about a moment ago and kind of bring it forward to, to your most recent point. When you had thousands of years of not only the pre-Christian, you know, Greek and Western notion of the transcendent, and really I would argue not even Western because the understanding of the transcendent has permeated every ancient culture, right. right? In the East and the West. And, you know, there's this sense of the transcendent and the supernatural that per- pervaded. It was an assumption. It was woven through, it was baked in the cake yeah. of mankind. And in Christianity, that takes form. And the mystery of the incarnation is how could this man, Jesus of Nazareth, be a man who is uh, so intimately connected to the transcendent, right? The transcendent takes form. So in the beginning was the word, word is with God, and the word took form in Christ. So Christianity, uh, I mean, civilization has had these assumptions about the transcendent for thousands and thousands of years, right? Yep. And that just permeated society in every way. So whether it's how buildings are designed or, or people's customs, what we do with our dead, how we treat each other, the, in every aspect of our society, there was the sense, somebody has once called it like the, 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 the haunted, right? That the culture of civilization in a sense was haunted, but in a sort of a good way, in the sense that we always lived under the notion that there were bigger things. There was a transcendent right. reality. There was a supernatural. Right. There was a bigger world beyond what we could just see and feel and touch with our senses. And... So that took that manifested itself in a thousand ways, and the thousand ways that people lived and interacted and built things and everything. This notion that what you can see and feel and touch, right, with your five senses, that's only a a fraction of all that is. And there was uh, smart people have made the point. They something they call it, called it the medieval synthesis. This notion at, at, at sort of the height of the sort of uh, pinnacle of Catholic medieval civilization. This synthesis of of theology, philosophy, architecture, mm-hmm. science, government. This sense that we all live in this larger universe. And this larger, bigger, transcendent universe, we, we live underneath it and as a part of it and intimately connected to it, okay? Right. And, and so over time, as mankind began to believe in that less and less and less, the Reformation comes, the Enlightenment comes, the French Revolution right. comes, right? All these sorts of things come. There's still a sort of residual sense of it in society. Right. 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 But over time, that's been ground down, Yeah. right? To the degree that 
by the 20th century, by the early to mid 20th century, that sense of the haunted transcendent universe that the material universe you can see, feel, hear, touch is only a portion of all that is, has been ground down in the latter part, by the latter part of the 20th century to the notion that all there is is what you can see, feel, touch, hear, measure. Right. Now, some people would say this is science, but it's not really science because uh, science was practiced and science doesn't require it. It's scientism. It's a worldview. It's a world. It's a. It's materialism. The notion that all that is is what I can see and feel and measure. And really, what's happened is I think about sixty, seventy, eighty years of this being relentlessly, right, relentlessly pushed and ground into us through education, through our cultural influencers, through all of our institutions, to the degree that children today grow up in a crummy, grubby material uh, with a, you know, they have the notion that they grew up in a crummy, grubby material universe and that all that ever is and all that ever will be is what they can see and feel and touch around them. And I think it, it leads to the uh, modern despair yeah. that we all fee- feel, yep. right? And, and there were a thousand ways that that was transmitted. Now, you identified the architecture thing. So you said brutalist, and that was actually the modernist or brutal. There's a thing called brutalist architecture, right. mid-20th century. All of those buildings, all of that stuff where people used to build civic buildings, used to build things that looked up and like, again, communicate truth, goodness, right. and beauty was all ground down and it all became functional, these kind of brutalist modern architecture. Right. And so then you think about what happens when you, when you grow up in a place where everything is ugly or brutal or functional and modernist, when all of that has been stripped away and then it's been relentlessly pushed and sort of told through education and, and you know, government in a thousand right. other ways, this is all there is. Again, I, I think it leads to, ultimately, it leads to despair. Right, because you're built for more. You're made for more. And if you, can't, if you don't get it or you deny that it's there, you're going you're gonna to feel that lack. Well, yeah. I, I, see, this is, a, this is a thing that has bothered me since I was in college and doing, you know, apologetics and philosophy and arguing with people on a on a very liberal college campus. And that is, um, so the materialist, the atheistic materialist says, all there is is what I can see and feel and measure. And if you think there's something more than that, then you have to prove it to me. Now I've had this argument. Oh my goodness. I've had this argument to the point where it's violent, you know, people yelling and flame whirring and, you know, throwing things across the room and pounding, slamming doors, right. Over the years, uh, in, apologetics forums and discussions and a thousand other things. Right. And and some pretty, you know, nasty flame wars online. Right. Right. But, uh, but look, um, my response to that is that causes those reactions is that the atheist or the materialist has just made an assertion. And the assertion is the only thing that counts is what we can see and feel and measure with our senses. And they mistake that assertion, uh, they, they make an assumption of that assertion. So in other words, they say, well, of course, that all that counts is what you can see and feel and touch and measure. And I say, right. well, 
that's an assertion on your part. That's a premise, philosophically. You're asserting that that's all that counts. But why should I believe that? Well, because it, that's just true, right? I mean, that's all that matters is what we can see and feel and touch. And I go, you know, you're making an argument. You're making an argument. And what is your proof that that's all that matters? That that's all that counts? What you can actually say is, I can only see and feel and touch and measure what is seeable, uh, hearable, feelable, yeah, and right, touchable right. and measurable. Now, that's true, right? <clears throat> if what you're saying is, I can only see, feel, and measure that which is seeable, visible, right. feelable, right. and measurable, right. sure, right. But the assertion that the only things that are are the things that I can see and feel and measure right. is an argument that you can make, but you're going to you're gonna have to prove to me why I should believe that. Because the testimony of mankind for all time and most humans that have ever lived is that there's something more than this. Right. Yeah. Now, we can get into a big arguments about what that something more is, how we know what it is, but that's what humans have been doing for 10,000 years is talking about philosophy, talking about theology, talking about these things, talking about the truths of method. That's why Plato and Aristotle talked about the truths of geometry. That's why, right. that's why Thomas Aquinas wrote. That's why, you know, in, and not just in the, in the West, but in the East, that's, you know, go read, go read Eastern philosophers, go read Muslim philosophers. I mean, throughout humanity, people have, there, there are a lot of ways that we discuss that which is not seeable, feelable, or measurable. Right. Right. And if what you want to say is only that which I can see and feel and measure is there can be nothing more than that. I mean, Einstein didn't even believe in that. Right. And, and what Einstein said was, yep, what you can see, feel and measure is what you can see, feel and measure. But there's no reason to believe that that's all there is. And what you're essentially saying is the transcendent is not seeable, feelable, or measurable. Yep, that's why it's trans. That's why it's the transcendent. Right. But is anybody not? And I could give a thousand examples of this, right? Like things that you believe that you can't see and feel and measure. Yeah. Do you believe your wife loves you? Can yeah. you prove that your wife loves you? What if she's conning you? What if it's a big put on? Right. What if she's after your money, Ed? <laughs> right. All of that. All of that, right, you know, musician money. We right? can rule that one out, yeah. <laughs> right? But the thing is, is I mean, and maybe that's not the best case, but like there's a thousand things that we believe right. or we come to believe that are not, that are not seeable, feelable, and measurable. What you can say about your wife is, well, she seemed to bring, she brought me dinner last night. Right. Um, she lives in my house. She doesn't leave me. She doesn't, right. you know, hit me in the, you know, noggin with a right. baseball bat while I right. sleep. And you go, okay, but you, how do you prove her love? How do you prove that from a mathematical or scientific standpoint? You can't, you believe it's true. And, right. and I could give a thousand other examples of that. Right. So in other words, what I'm driving at is there is something more and we've lost this sense and it really creates I really think the modern sense of despair that has plagued mankind for the last 50, 60, 80 years and war and terrible things, right? Once you believe this is all there is and we're just fighting over what there is, right. there's no moral accountability. 
This is one of the things I think is super crazy when I hear atheists or materialists talking about right and wrong and justice and social justice, right? And they'll go, well, this is social, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm a materialist, but this is social justice and you ought to do X, Y, Z. And I go, why should I, why ought to do this? Because that's what justice demands. And I go, what, what, what's justice? Right. And even the atheist and materialist will go on wax poetic about justice. Justice is not seeable, feelable, or measurable. Right. It's a transcendent reality, like truth, goodness, and beauty. Well, Jesus talked about this. He said, the wind blows and you can't see it, right. but you see the effect of it. Yeah. Uh, there was a, um, there was, I was reading a, a science book, which, which horrifies my wife, but I was reading one a while back and the guy was talking about atomic particles, some atomic particles that you can't see. And he gave this example. He said, let's say that there's a, a soccer game going on and you're watching it, but the ball is invisible. Yeah. You, you, you have to, you see the men running around and kicking it and uh, kicking at something. And if you watch long enough, you'll see a round shape in the net. You'll, you'll get a sense of, of how far this ball flies. When some this thing flies when you can't pretty soon you think there's something there that I can't see. Well, that's right. You know, the transcendent truth, goodness, and beauty shapes by its effects reality. But yeah. again, I want to go back to the notion that this is an intuition, that a lot of truth, right? So there's truth that's known empirically, <laughs> scientifically, right? right? So I know that, uh, you know, I, there are things, again, that I can see and feel and measure, and I can know certain things by that. But there's a lot of things that we just know intuitively. And let me come back to the notion of justice. So when I've, you know, had robust discussions with atheists or materialists, I say, um, give me your car keys. I'm like, what do you mean? Give me your car keys or else I'm going to, you know, bonk you on the head with this ashtray and take them. I'm bigger right. than you are. Right. Well, you can't do that. That's wrong. And I go, what do you mean wrong? Well, it's immoral. It's wrong. And I go, well, you can't see or feel or measure morality. What is the, what is this notion of morality and right and wrong and, and standards of justice? Well, they, they, because, because they don't really believe that they know that there's <laughs> right. something right and wrong. And they know that if I bonk them on the head here and take their car keys and you right. Know, right, abscond with their vehicle, that they're going to cry foul and say that that was wrong and, and, and immoral and evil. Right. So there is this notion of justice is this notion of good and bad and everything else. And again, those are transcendent realities. But what we've convinced ourselves is that this grubby material universe, and, and let me just say that when you look at the crimes of the 20th century, you know, look at the, the, the terrible crimes of the 20th century, the terrible inhumanity to other people on wholesale effects, right? The Holocaust, the, you know, the, the Holdemar and the Ukraine, look at, you know, all of these different things were, were around the world, Stalin and Mao and right now, horrible, horrible things that were done to other people. That only can be done when you believe that it is materialism, that is, there is nothing transcendent, there is nothing for which we are accountable, right? right? And then it really comes down to, Guns. You know, we, we, I think we've talked before about George or Orwell's classic book, 1984, yeah. right? And in 1984, two, two things that stand out, right, is when they take Winston Smith, the hero or the protagonist, and they take him into the Ministry of Truth and lock him in the room, the interrogation room, right? right? And they want to get him to say two plus two equals five. And, and right? And, you know, and he knows that he's going to concede something important if he says that, because then the, the state the party, the government will own his mind, right? If they can get you to say that, if I can get you to say that two plus two equals five or, 
that <laughs> right. again, we're going to lose, we're going to get cut off Spotify and Apple Podcasts right. because if I can get you to say that boys are girls and girls are boys and two plus two equals five, right? And if right. I can get you to say these things, then in a sense, I have taken over truth in yeah. your mind or, and there's yeah. nothing beyond there is. And so anyway, Winston Smith senses that in 1984 and the interrogator says, two plus two is whatever the party says yeah. it is. Yeah. It's whatever the party wants it to be. And so it becomes down to power men with guns. And then the interrogator a little bit later says to Winston Smith, this is it. You grasp it. He said, imagine a boot on a human face forever. And that is the future of mankind. Because when there is no transcendent truth, there is no accountability. Right. When there is no truth, goodness, or beauty, there is only the brutality of who has the guns, who has the boots, and who has the power. And that's the story of the 20th century, and it's increasingly becoming the story of the 21st century, that those who have power, I mean material, if in a material universe, only those with material power, the guns, the boots, the power, right. will define, they're going to do what they're going to do, and there's nothing that can stop them, and they're going to define reality however they define it. And the break on all of that, the, the, right, the break on all of that was this notion that whatever we do, there are things that are beyond just the men with guns and boots and tanks and power. And right. those are the transcendence of truth and goodness and beauty and justice. And to the degree that that's been stripped away, it has left us in this despairing place. The Catholic Church looks to me like it's rapidly becoming the last, uh, the last bulwark. Well, you know? I, I, I believe that. You know, I, I told friends when I was, you know, going to become Catholic. And, you know, Corey and I way back... Uh, I don't know, a number of months ago in our book club episodes, we did a book club on the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord mm -hmm. of the Rings. So I'm going to say something here that will only make sense to people who have read Lord of the Rings, but we made the contention that it's perhaps the greatest Catholic novel of the 20th century or greatest Catholic story of the 20th century. And I remember if you know anything about that or you saw the Peter Jackson movies or whatever, uh, there was um, the kingdom of Gondor and the city of Minas Tirith and Mordor mm -hmm. and Sauron and unleashing the forces of hell, so to speak. Right. And there was one city that stood there, right? Right at the gates of Mordor, which yeah. the tides of, you know, the, tide, right. the tides of, of Mordor would break against the city of Minas Tirith. And I remember at the time when I converted to Catholicism telling people, I'm going to become Catholic because I believe that the Catholic church is the minus Tirith of this century. Right. If it falls, everything falls. Yeah. If, if the Catholic Church fails to uphold truth, goodness, and beauty, what is left? Yeah. And uh, in, in our civilization, and, and, and the last bastion, the last stronghold must hold. And I told friends, I would rather die on the walls of Minas Tirith. I would rather die on the walls of defending the truth and goodness and beauty that the Catholic Church speaks of than to, to wander outside that right. and be overwhelmed by it. You know, let me give another theological <laughs> reference to, you know, talk about Tolkien uh, to, um, uh, to the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, yeah. Um, so I used to do university ministry for many, many years. And uh, all of my 
students that were in our university ministry know that I said this. In fact, they they knew that I said this so much that I remember they teased me when one year when when we were going to leave to become Catholic and they held like this kind of farewell party and they they did a whole bunch of spoofy stuff on us. Right. And, and the story I'm about to tell, they they kind of did a whole spoof like skit of me telling right. the story because I guess I told it like ten thousand times, right? But in in um, one of the Narnia books, the Silver Chair, right? And if you've not read this, there's the, the, these children, the children who are the heroes, right? And they're they're traveling through this witch's kingdom, and they've got this guy, this Marshwiggle, who's like this giant, I don't know, like amphibious sort of fella, right, with webbed feet and you know all that, and Puddleglum the Marshwiggle. And anyway, they fall, they come to this witch's castle, and this witch is trying to seduce them into not believing in Aslan, who is like you know, Christ right. and Aslan's country, which is like heaven, the kingdom of God. And so anyway, she she's in this room with them in her castle and she's casting this spell on them and she's throwing like um, some powder, incense powder stuff into the fire. And it smells all sweet and all that. And it's kind of doping them up like, you know, this opium high. And she's like, you know, this is all there is. There's nothing more than this. And they go, well, you know, there's the sun. And she goes, oh, the sun, you've just seen a lamp. And then you project the, the a bigger idea of the lamp and then that's your notion of the sun. And they say, well, there's Aslan. And she goes, oh, that's just because you've seen a kitty cat. And then you just imagine a bigger kitty cat and that's your God Aslan, right? And so then at that point, uh, it says Apollo shakes himself and he goes over to the fire and he takes his web feet and he stamps it out. <clears throat> it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, Lewis says, hey, you know, there's nothing like the smell of burnt marsh wiggle right. to break the <laughs> smell of right. dark magic. And then Puddleglum says this to the witch. He says, uh, you know, you may be right. You're a grubby little world. Right. Maybe all there is. But I would rather die looking for Aslan in his country. Right. To live a day in your grubby little world. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's it. Right. So, you know, I, I say to the materialist and the atheist who's reduced all of this to a grubby little world, well, maybe this is the grubby little world that you've, you've constructed. But right. I don't believe in it. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life following truth and goodness and beauty where they lead. Yeah. And the Catholic Church, in my mind, is the last and best purveyor and preserver and promoter of that that's still standing in Western civilization. Yeah. I'm more and more convinced. All right. All right. Good stuff, well, man. Thanks, Next Ed. time. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.